Hey, Billy, I'm wondering, have you been looking for a way to get better as a coach? Uh, always. That's good because you could do it by using GMS Plus. It's a great resource for courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Many of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmstead, Keegan Cook, John Spira, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson, have used it or are a part of it. They're also actually have been former guests, so you know they're good. Personally, I've learned a lot from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. So if you're looking to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. Get 20% off an annual subscription today. Go to goldmedalsquared.com backslash CYBO and enter CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter coupon code CYBO. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. For LMU Beach, you have multiple players, uh, you know, different teams. It's not like it's one team. Um, how do you find a challenge point at practice with players of different levels? It's really difficult. And at times, uh, maybe impossible. And I think part of it, you have to prioritize. You have to figure out, you know, who's who's maybe going to, you know, who's going to start for you and who you've got to put the most of your resources into. But one way that we found success with it is what we talked about on that recent episode is the idea of the exploratory lab, the laboratory where uh, each person, usually when we set up the lab, each person would have a different challenge they're interacting with. We don't say constraint, but it'd usually be a constraint. So, you know, if one person is using the occlusion glasses where, you know, they're, they're working on serve receive and we have the glasses that make their vision go dark so they can't see at the last second. Uh, and that's challenging them to be able to read the ball. You know, that's a pretty high level one. Where another athlete, um, you know, maybe is doing something a little bit simpler and, you know, they're working on serve receive, but they're... Uh, they're just trying to pass it in front of this line that we drew. We'll draw a line at the 15 foot line and see how many you can get to go, you know, give them that external target and make it land in front of this line. So you could go through down the list. Like each player has a different challenge and you're trying to find the appropriate challenge point and the appropriate, you know, I don't know if task is the right word, but the appropriate um, skill that they're exploring. And then I think if you do it right, they're all in, in, you know, a challenge point that's, that's uh frustrating and 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 uh, difficult and and hopefully a little bit fun and and new for them um, but outside of the the lab i'm not sure uh make it, i think it could be quite difficult um i i think i tend to go probably more towards what's the upper like the level that the higher level of our team and that means some of our lower level players will be drowning at times um and i guess that just takes probably some more care and more discussion off the court with them to help them understand that like this is you know this is really hard the things we're doing and um hang in there mm-hmm. it's not yeah that makes sense can you talk about the difference between synchronistic and antagonistic skills and how that relationship guides your practices yeah i learned this from casey Kreider. like a lot of this that i've learned he, he's been a great mentor for me I think it's a nice framework for understanding first volleyball and understanding the um, 
the importance of how we set up activities. So as I've, as I've dove into some of this, think about like different sports, tennis is a net sport, right? Like ours. And actually all the net sports I could think of ping pong, tennis, badminton, they're all an antagonistic relationship. So antagonistic meaning when I'm serving, I'm trying to make it hard for you to return it. And when I return it back, I'm trying to make it difficult for you to get my return. And it's just back and forth antagonistic. Maybe I guess with doubles, there's a little bit of cooperation, but all the attacks over the net are antagonistic. Volleyball is unique in that it has both components, at least for a net sport. There's also the synchronistic component where when I pass the ball, I'm trying to stay connected and in sync with my setter, whether it's indoor or beach. I'm trying to put in a spot that makes it easy for my setter to set it. And then again, I'm trying to synchronize as a setter with my hitter. So they're able to hit with range. And then once the hitter attacks it, the antagonistic relationship begins again. We're, we're trying to make it hard for them to block us, hard for them to dig us. And we're antagonizing them as much as possible. So those are the the two main component, two old components I think of in, in our game. And a lot of other sports too, like soccer, there's the synchronistic or basketball, there's both antagonistic and synchronistic components. So yeah, I think it's a really fascinating way to view our sport. And then how does that guide you? So for instance, if a passer is working, they're receiving an antagonistic serve. So how would that guide you on how you challenge that passer? In so many ways, I'll, I'll start just a step back. As a server, I don't really know how effective my serve is unless I get feedback from the passer. So a lot of people will practice serving with no passer on the other side, and we're taking out that antagonistic component. You know, I'm just serving and watching it land, and I don't know how the passer read me. I don't know how, you know, if I serve a second ball, how are they going to adjust? Are they going to step forward and how I want to antagonize that? I don't get to include all those decision-making Parts and and then I think a lot of people work on serve receive more synchronistically, right? Like we're gonna pop in serves, we're gonna bowl balls, and you have a synchronistic uh, relationship with the ball coming over. When in matches, it's never that way. It's always someone antagonizing you. And then as a passer, how do I know if it's a good pass if I don't have someone setting it? I could think of beach volleyball where there's a serve down the middle. And both of us go for the ball and I pass the ball forward to where it's, you know, a, a so, so-called good pass. But my setter was trying to pass it with me. And now we got aced, even though it was, you know, perfect pass if there's no setter there. So I have to be aware as a passer of how, you know, if we're both going for this ball, where do I put this in this situation? How do I stay synchronized with my setter? And then the same thing, I think of like the traditional, like an indoor setting to a, a target or, you know, someone on a box to catch it or in beach triangle setting, you know, you set to someone catching it. So much of setting is having an understanding of the relationship of me and the hitter. Did the hitter fall over? Uh, what step are they on? Um, you know, I need all this feedback to see like how accurate was my set. If I don't have that hitter jumping and swinging, I'm losing a big component of, of this skill and the development of this skill. I'm not saying there's like, there's, there's probably some transfer still if I'm just setting into a, a, a hoop, but to maximize that skill, we want this synchronized component of setting to a hitter, getting the feedback by seeing the hitter jump and hit where they're in rhythm, where they're able to hit with range, 
were they on balance? You know, did I did I see that they just passed it or that the Lobero passed it? All these different situations that are really important to a setter's decision making um, has to be included if we want that synchronistic component. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense, and definitely like I can see how in the you know you think of like a drill that maybe youth volleyball does where they serve to a partner and it's like maybe even pass it and catch it and try to like outscore another team um, where it's you're taking a antagonistic relationship and making it synchronistic. And so it's just not representative of, of the game. Yeah. It makes sense right. to like keep, yeah. Those, yeah. keep those relationships intact. Yeah. Whenever possible. I mean, if, if your only option, if you only have one person and you can't, then, you can. There's probably still a little learning you could do. It just you wouldn't be maximizing it, and you'd lose a lot of the rich feedback. So, um, one when we talk, one question I always pick your brain on is uh, ecological dynamics and examples. Um, and like we've talked a lot about the theory, but I think just really seeing maybe some scenarios uh, how how you would coach it and how it would play out in the in a volleyball gym. So I have a couple scenarios for you if you're up for it. Yeah, give it a shot. All right. So you're working with a new setter. Um, you know, she's setting wild as expected, but you're observing that she's maybe not getting her feet to the ball. She's coming off the net, anticipating a bad pass, but then jumping laterally back to the net. And it's a problem because she's not, you know, setting well cleanly or with that power or accuracy. Um, traditionally, my impulse would be to like tell her, Hey, you want to get your feet under the ball. You want to strive for balance, have the ball in your forehead, that kind of stuff. How do you look at it? Do you see those extra movements? as noise to be constrained out or how do you tackle that kind of stuff now? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard one. Um, I do try to make sure I observe and see if what they're doing is working first before just like, Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. Um, but from there, I was actually listening to an interview with Wolfgang Schulhorn. If I'm saying that right, he's the differential learning guy. And I'd love to actually just email them today and try to get him on our podcast. Cause he did a volleyball study, but, and, and like Rob Gray and some of the ecological the minded people would talk about one way is to amplify the noise like um and i'd have to see this scenario but like have her do a more extreme version of that jump um or take like lots of steps like take all these little um like too many steps and do like i guess basically like try to go towards that extreme of maybe too much and then challenge her to do as little, like as few steps as possible. Like what's the least amount of steps you could do to get to that ball um, and have her explore those extremes. And I guess mainly to expand her bandwidth of being able to set accurately. And maybe also she's discovering um, that one way is you know, less effective for her at this point. You could also use a constraint doing a game like, uh, I, this might, I just made this up, but counting the amount of steps she takes like if she took you know three steps to it or less you get three points for your side and you guys get a kill uh, uh if you take three or more then uh you can't score you can only wash it so i guess just really trying to entice her nudge her towards i mean one i guess the passers would have to pass pretty accurately and i don't know if three is the right number but two, she'd have to be really efficient with the amount of steps she she took for your team to score. And maybe she would do it and you like try it and you're like she's like moving really funny and uh, barely taking any steps. And now she's taking an even weirder spot. So that might backfire, but at least it would, it would start to um, 
to nudge her to explore for to a new movement solution. And then, yeah, maybe from there you'd have to adjust again, but I'm so far out of the indoor game. It's hard for me to come up with a constraint. Mm. Um, and I guess that's kind of the hard part of, I feel like it's more important to understand like the triangle that you can constrain the environment or the task than understanding, like giving people recipes, like here's, you know, here, if you do this exact constraint, then you've got it all figured out. I think it's more important to understand the principles. So then you can figure out how to apply them to your, you know, to your unique environment, to your unique learner. Is that yeah. a pop out? Well, I, I still, I still think hearing examples, uh, gives you kind of a concrete picture and maybe it, it doesn't apply to your individual player, but like, Hey, it's, Oh, I would make this little tweak. We're just look, we're just being told like, you know, change the, change the person or whatever, you know, or the picture of a triangle seems like it's the theory of it seems less, uh, easy for me to jump to a constraint than hearing a constraint that's close to it yeah, that I would yeah. adjust. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it's maybe nice to hear. Like, uh, almost sometimes it's helped when I've heard constraints in other sports. Mm. Uh, and then that kind of makes me understand the concepts more and then how to apply it. Um, I don't know. I just thought of one, I don't know if, this helps. I remember this is when Casey Kreider had told me how his back row attackers were not hitting for a very high percentage. And what they noticed were, were the setters were kind of setting them like closer to the 10 foot line. It was like this trajectory that was going more backwards. So it wasn't leading them. And the hitters were basically hitting closer to, as you would know, the 11 foot line. Um, and uh, it's Danny kind of reference. So they did a game where if uh, any back row attack, the hitter had to land in front of the 10 foot line. Like if they landed on the line or behind the line, you couldn't score. You can only wash it. So then the setters, instead of, you know, giving them, you know, setters, you got to move your hands like this and hitters, you got to take this four step. Yeah. They had to just figure out how to set it tighter and jump and hit it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's one example of maybe that one's a little more straightforward than yours that you gave. Um, yeah, I feel like if I got to watch yours, I could come up with some better. Yeah, well, that that that's example of a constraint. Like, I feel like that helps me a lot more than just again explaining the theory. Because <laughs> uh, then I guess say, oh, yeah, I, yeah, that's a cool rule game, rule change that you would how you'd apply to whatever. Um, so when it comes, like, I think hand setting, especially on the beach, is a good example of seeing such a variety of solutions. Like, there's so many different forms on how people set. Um, you know, from from Tony Prey or Avery to, you know, something else. Like there's a lot of, a lot of ways to, to set clean to a hitter. How do you know when something is just that individual's biomechanics and their style, or, or how do you know, like, it, even if it's successful, like a good amount of times, I guess, how do you decide as a coach when just to leave it or when it could be even better, let's say if they did a little more of a traditional thing. So I, I, I guess I, I wouldn't know. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think with anybody, I'd be like, oh, they're done. They figured out setting, like they've mastered <laughs> it. I think it would be more, um, yeah. Can I, how can I find the right challenge point for them now? Um, setting is so complex. Like, I mean, indoors and on the beach, there's balls you've got to set when you're facing the net. There's balls you, you know, if you could set when you're on one foot, there's balls when you're, you know, backpedaling and setting it there's balls that yeah you might have to release a little bit quicker 
So I just really try to put them in lots of those different situations and open up this. Yeah, it just goes back to like, I used to go for repeatability and now I really strive for adaptability. Like how many ways can we set it accurately? So yeah, let's do a game where you can only set and face the net. Um, let's try one where the ball's on fire. And if you set for a long time, you know, you're going to burn your hands. And let's, you know, just keep adding in these different constraints, these different analogies and growing this skill set. It's not a, it's not a, a fundamental. It's a, yeah, it's a broad landscape of, of movement, adaptability, movement skill. And we're trying to, to widen that, that landscape for to as wide as possible. I don't know that the answer. I mean, I don't know if I'm getting right to like the hands situation. I mean, there's probably things you could do with like putting bands around their wrists so they can they like have to follow through a certain way. Um, there's probably different constraints you could add to like change if you wanted to try to, you know, change their release. But I think some of it would happen too, just from like yeah, a hot ball or using a volley light because it's smaller, like adding in different constraints would get them to to try to set the ball accurately and and hopefully and self-organize towards more effective solutions. Uh, I had some culture questions for you. Um, do you have culture meetings with your players in, like before the season or during the season? And if so, what is discussed? I don't know why it gives me like a weird feeling, a culture meeting. <laughs> I don't know. It seems... That's probably a good thing to do. No, we we I don't, or at least I don't call it that. It seems like just meeting with the player to hang out and chat and get to know them and learn more about them and and talk about volleyball. We did this year for the first time. We did um, from the culture system by JP Nurban, who I thought was awesome. The book was great. We took that player improvement plan, um, the PIP, where. We did some motivational interviewing and helped them come up with their kind of goals and aspirations and how they were going to commit to it and went through that. But that I don't think that's so much culture is more just giving them their their like, vision. Like, uh, do you have do you have anything that's like, hey, like we we decided as a group or you individually, like as a LMU lion, this is maybe some of the values we're gonna represent. Um, yeah, I guess kind of those overarching program things. Don't really like do, we did a little meeting this year, like what's more so with like logistics, like setting up nets and we have a van and like that sort of stuff, just because we don't have like a hierarchy, like, oh, freshmen do this. It's just all hands on deck. Let's all try to make practice go as well as it can. So we went through and it was also from the culture system, like what would be exceptional on our team? What would be, you know, average? What would be acceptable? And just talked about, those sorts of things. And it talks about like in the weight room or a team dinner, but I don't know if, like how much transfer there is from those, those meetings. It probably has a small impact. It mm -hmm. really is to me is more just like the day-to-day, -day, like me modeling it. Like I'm going to go put an antenna up. I'm going to help shag balls. And then probably more importantly, really having those strength finding glasses on and, and noticing it in them like, Hey, Melanie, thanks for shagging those balls. That really helped. Um, or, you know, hey, so-and-so, thanks for, you know, supporting, uh, you know, that girl. She was really, I could tell she was really frustrated and what, what you said helped her. And uh, it just seems like it's way more about like the day-to-day -day interactions and the conversations and 
and I guess the way we come in as coaches, like how we talk about practice and how, how much we value it and all the like little interactions we have and hopefully like them seeing me like trying to learn and always trying to get better is setting a tone for who we want to be. And then having returners helps. I think they, if they're bought in, they, they already come in and kind of live it. So I don't know. It feels much more organic. There's definitely thought behind it, I guess, but it feels just much more like, yeah, much more organic. Like we're just, we're just a team Mm -hmm. (laughs) than like, like separate, I don't know, trust falls or stuff like that. Memorizing long mottos and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to your, to your stuff on values, we, I mean, our core value as a program is to be great learners. And I don't, I don't have like anything like wallpaper and I don't even know if I say it. I'm just constantly like any email, any, you know, what'd you learn today? What'd you learn from that game? Um, you know, they come in for film, what, you know, what have you been learning this week? It's just like constantly talking about it. So I'd imagine if you asked them, they, they wouldn't even say like, oh yeah, our core value is to be great learners. But you sneak if you in. ask them like, like, no, yeah. But if you ask them like, what, like, what is your program about? I, I'd imagine learning would be one of the first things they'd say. Um, but we do, thanks to Peter Habrell, we do have them search and explore for their, their, their personal values. And so I do lots of journaling, um, lots of discussion about like, what do you like at your best and back and forth with partners. And so they discover their, their own personal values. And then within their, their partnerships, they have shared team values on what they want to be like. It's not me saying like, you know, this team, your, your partnership, you know, you have to be about this, this, and that. Cause I have my personal values, but they might be different than theirs. So I'm really more trying to help them discover their values and, and helping them discover their team values so they can go in and play the way they want to play. And as a coach, you, are you keeping track of all their values so you can kind of reference them and highlight them or hold them accountable, talk about their own personal values? Yeah, we, they make a values document. So we have a Google doc where they have their core values as a team. And, and mainly they talk about like everybody, you know, everybody says, Oh, I value hard work, but it's more about the action. So this is what this value looks like in action. You know, when I'm, when I'm giving, you know, full effort, I'm going for every ball and, um, you know, I'm, I'm supporting my teammate after they make mistakes. Like to me, that's effort. Okay, great. Those are actions we can look for. So yeah, they, they, um, they create them. And then we're just talking about them a lot. I mean, as we've learned from Peter, you know, better than me, uh, that there's all sorts of feelings that come up and emotions and our, our mind is a thought and emotion producing factory. And, and um our attention is stolen you know there's this thief that takes our our attention all the time um things like nervousness and and um excitement and fear and judgment and all these you know thoughts come up around around performance and that's where it's so important to be clear on your values like i can feel nervous i can feel you know like i don't feel confident but i know what my values are i know i'm about being a great partner and even though i don't feel um you know, even though I feel fearful, I can still go be a great teammate. I can bring the best out of my partner right now because that's what I value and that's what I'm going to act on. So yeah, before every match, we don't really talk about the other side a whole lot. We just say, you know, what's a value that's important for you right now? Like, 
when this match is over, what, what would make it a successful match? And that's where they'll talk about their values. And is it great? You know, there's two girls named Sally over there and let's go BS. Let's go play LMU volleyball and, and live your values. So yeah, I guess we, we talk about them a lot. You mentioned you had your own personal values. You mind sharing those? Yeah, I have my own value document. Um, one of them is probably obviously is, is learning and to be a great learner and the podcast has been such a uh, been so lucky to have that uh, in in helping me become a better learner and another one is uh i think i use the word blue collar basically just like industrious or like hardworking. um i kind of like the blue collar idea it's like you know there's not a lot of limelight just kind of head down get better work hard um and then I'm blanking on my third one. <laughs> I have a third one. I need to pull up that document. Um, it's, it's but those are the yeah the first two. Yeah, memory. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, those are two big ones. Yeah, that's awesome. I get some more culture questions. So, if you were coaching a team where winning a championship was unrealistic, um, what goals would you have? How would you motivate? I guess the players and yourself, or how would you measure your team success? Yeah, it's. It's never been, I mean, I, I'm really competitive. So I guess. Let's say you're coaching me. Like I want, <laughs> well, I mean, I think no matter what, like I want to try to win. Like that's a big, big goal, but it seems like why I coach and why I love sport and volleyball is so much more than if we win the championship. I mean, that that's just so like short term. I don't know. I was lucky to win some FIVB, some AVP championships. And like, it felt really good for a little bit. And I remember like I'd give the trophy to like, Tom Davenport or I don't know, someone who was there. And, and that was that. And I guess when I reflect upon my playing career, it was, I mean, I'm thankful for it because of like all the learning I did, all the people I met, all the experiences I had, all the stress that I, I got to try to sort through all the yeah problems I had to solve, um, the friends I made. And I think that's why sport's so great because only one team is going to win the championship, but all of us are going to gain these life lessons and these life skills and these experiences you'll never forget and relationships that you'll forever value. So I just, with my teams, we don't spend much time. Like, we'll, you know, what are some goals yeah, we want to win? our conference win a championship and and if it was unrealistic i would say it like yeah it's probably not possible and let's let's change the goal like what if the goal is um you know we could still keep it a, a goal what if it was to win more than half of our games and then from then on out i wouldn't bring that up probably rarely and just get to work on our values like let's be great learners let's form lasting relationships let's have experiences that are meaningful and let's do it together and then I guess if you're if you're not winning, you're you're still using those strength goggles and, and finding good stuff. Yeah, I mean the, that stuff's always out of your control. So if that's where your primary focus is, you're you're just setting up a framework that's a little, like limited and and out of your control. So it's going to be pretty, I guess, pretty un unrewarding. Where the other stuff, yes, yeah, what's in your control and might as well put your focus into that, those sorts of things. 
When it comes to strategy and tactics stuff, how do you decide what is like part of the LMU system and what do you leave up to the individuals? I'm thinking, I know you guys do like set location calls, um, but yeah, when it comes to, I guess, set heights and strategies and stuff, how do you make that decision? Definitely try to look at the strengths of the player. I mean, I'm thinking of like the defender, for example, if someone's really quick laterally, then you know maybe more of like a read and react system is more set for them where maybe another player yeah it's not as quick laterally so maybe more like trying to you know smoke and mirrors and bait people and running more trick plays is gonna lend themselves to more success but with both players i want to give them lots of tools because some hitters are it's impossible to stop them if you just read and react so you got to have that tool of maybe being able to bait them into something and and then the same for the other person. Some players aren't, you know, going to even look at you. So why are you dancing around? So you might as well be balanced. Um, so I guess I probably used to do more with that sort of stuff. Like if we're going over a tactic um, on the beach, we have this play called a three where, you know, the blocker can step towards the angle and then dive back to the line. And maybe I would have been a little more prescriptive, like, take a two, you know, a shuffle and then, you know, get down 45 degrees and then jump to the right. Where now I'll just, you know, say we'll have this, this play called the three and the goal of it is to get the hitter to hit low line or a cut shot. And then you guys try to figure out how you're going to influence the hitter to do that. So I guess giving them some more freedom to figure out how they want to move different ways they can influence the hitter. I think then that that lends to like creative and just more variety within our team and people doing it for a six foot defender. They might make that move or six foot blocker might make it way different than a, you know, six, five blocker or a five, eight blocker. So giving them the opportunity to, to make those moves for what fits their body best. And when it comes to defense, yeah, I guess, I mean, especially on the beach, there's not, there's a lot of different starting positions traditionally in indoor, like if you're right back, you kind of dig in the right back or beach, I guess is a little more free range. Um, let's say if you were coaching, I don't know if it applies to beach, but if you were coaching indoor, would you be more explicit on where the defenders should be? Um, or would you like, how would you yeah, set up a defensive system? Yeah, I'd have to think about it more. Um, I'm sure there's lots of like heat maps for you can figure out for your league that, would make sense like probably makes sense to tell people like most people hit it in this zone <laughs> let's defend there um so yeah I'd, I'd probably give them some i don't know if i'd call it explicit but maybe i'd say external <laughs> like draw draw some boxes you can go within or like tape try to defend within this zone when it's an outside set you know you can go maybe give them you know some leeway to go within like a tape box. I think I remember when I used to coach indoor, like I teach them the move, like a, you know, a step and a hop. I think I'd go more like, here's the box. We want you to be in on a go, um, you know, and let them try to self-organize and how they're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd also probably do stuff like, all right, you're not allowed in that box um, to get them to explore in a new way. And maybe they'd find something better. Um for long, lots of sports, coaches have been giving explicit feedback that 
is inaccurate or impossible or unhelpful. <laughs> so I think the more, you know, the more it can be an opportunity to try something versus like the only way, I think, you know, the better for them and, and, and again, allows for more self-organization.